Welcome to the True Story London podcast. I'm Michelle Toth. In this podcast, we listen to a true personal story told live at one of our shows in London, followed by a conversation with the storyteller about their background, process, story themes, and more. Today's storyteller is Sophia Blackwell, telling us how she went from good girl to not so much when she accidentally got her parents high. Sophia is a performance poet who has a wonderful way with words, which makes her really fun to listen to and talk with. So stick around for the conversation we have afterward. But first, let's listen to her story recorded live at 21 Soho. I was always a good girl, which is why when I got my clinical psychologist mother and my deputy headmaster father stoned at the age of 17, it came as a bit of a surprise to uh, all of us, quite frankly. I was an only child and a people pleaser. I was a senior prefect. I was in the debating society. I was a featured soloist in the choir. I got all A's. Basically, I was Rachel Berry from Glee with slightly more pronounced lesbian tendencies. (laughs) Still am, to be honest. But even at that age, and even still a fairly innocent girl, I knew that I liked to get my buzz on in small ways. Starbucks had just opened in the Northeast at the time, very exotic. And I was always hopped up on weird-tasting chemical coffee. On the rare occasions that I got into trouble in school, it was usually when I was in history class, and I was, like, too manic because I was off my tits on frappuccinos. I loved school. The thing is, when I was 15, my parents had taken me out of my Roman Catholic state school, where the main forms of education were upskirting and fingering in the corridors, uh, seeing who could draw the most offensive graffiti on pictures of the Last Supper, and smoking B&H in the toilets. After one parent's evening ended particularly badly, uh, my mother took action and I was parachuted into a private school full of wholesome, good girls, posh girls, as soon as they could scare up the money. Uh, It was a bit weird, but, you know, I didn't really know what to do because they were so wholesome and so good. And plus, I thought my family were supposed to be socialists, but they were the sort of fair weather kind, apparently. Um, So I was was in this school and, you know, I, I seized that chance to turn my life around with both hands because I was really bored and not learning anything in my old school but it did mean that my old school friends would take the piss out of my wobbly posh Geordie accent which as you can tell is now just posh (laughs) and would throw snowballs at me on the way home from my new school and given that it snowed more in Newcastle this did happen quite a lot still I made five close new girlfriends and I didn't really miss the smell of teenage boys except for when I went to the equally private boys school across the road you know for the shift Uh, because I had a boyfriend Um, he also turned out to be gay which given his extensive knowledge of musical theatre shocked absolutely no one So, so safe, so vanilla. Um, I was very calm, I was very settled. The trouble is, it was a bit too safe. And at the time that this story takes place, I was already a little bit in disgrace after a drinking session at a friend's parents' house had got out of hand. We all know how those things are. We'd spent the week before basically attacking our parents' drinks cabinets and siphoning like weird combinations of port and brandy and vodka and limoncello and all of that into plastic bottles, which we then toted around school and showed off to each other as though these were bottles of the finest Dom Perignon and not plastic bottles full of what looked like the trucker's weed that you find on motorway service stations around the UK. 
My friend Ali had told me that she had a terrific capacity for booze and had in fact drunk a bottle of vodka the previous week. The projectile vomiting that followed this statement proved her wrong as she decorated her parents' cream carpets with a fountain of Malibu sick (laughs) while singing Girls Just Wanna Have Fun. It was an interesting one, definitely, and I I still can't look at Malibu or smell it in in quite the same way. Thing is, part Italian family, so feeding kids wine from a young age is actually quite approved. So quite high tolerance, I was quite sober. And because of that, my parents had believed that I wasn't involved in obtaining the booze for this suburban debauch until they found some of the leftover truckers' wee bottles in my backpack and all hell broke loose. And it was hard because it wasn't so much the booze, it wasn't so much Ali's parents' carpets because they didn't really like them, so that was cool. Um, It was the fact that I'd lied to them and that I was a crap liar all of my childhood, so for the first time they had believed me. And they didn't like that at all. So things were a bit cold between us in the way they hadn't been before for a couple of weeks. And it was nobody's fault, really. I was just at that age, you know, there were three of us, and there had always been three of us, and it had been great, but suddenly that felt weird, like my parents were like my weird old flatmates. I needed to get out. I needed to get off the sofa, stop constantly watching Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, and ideally get laid with someone I actually fancied and had sexual chemistry with. This is where the weed comes in. I got myself a girlfriend, an older woman, Josie, or Joe, as I referred to her at school. I was still fudging my pronouns because it was 1997 and it wasn't quite cool to be gay yet. However, gay clubbing did turn me on to more sophisticated forms of booze, such as warm, pissy Australian lager and Smirnoff mules. Like I said, it was the 90s. But even these ambrosial, tasty beverages paled into insignificance when I discovered weed. Quick PSA, I don't actually smoke anymore, which is a shame because with this government you do need something to take the edge off every now and then. (laughs) But at the time it was this really innocuous stuff, you know, these fragrant little green buds, you know, practically potpourri. And then the hash, you know, little resin that was in my violin case because of course I played second violin in the school orchestra because that was the kind of girl I was. But I also liked baking. And the best thing about hash was that you could cook with it. Josie and I even had a book of weed recipes. And these had clearly been written by people who were already off their face. (laughs) However, some of the principles in them still held true. So my parents' drinks cabinet came under assault yet again as I took the brandy, melted down the hash into it, and mixed the resulting concoction into cake batter. When it came to my 17th birthday, I knew that I was going to make something very special. (laughs) Quick back to my parents now, because they've gone out of the picture a little bit. They were at the height of their careers at this point and kind of trying to master their own addictions. My dad had and continues to like the beer, but he was still a teacher, and the combination of hangovers and year nine battle of the bands was proving quite difficult for him to handle, so he was cutting down on booze. And my mother was going cold turkey from cigarettes, and she'd smoked 20 B&H a day. In fact, I kind of got annoyed that I couldn't nick them anymore. So they weren't really paying much attention to what I was getting up to. Another quick PSA. The thing about cooking with THC is that it doesn't take effect immediately. It also affects people differently, so some people can be absolutely fine and some can be seeing lizards coming out of the walls. And the other thing is that the psychotropic substances tend to concentrate themselves into one or two parts of the cake or brownie. 
So, when I made my 17th birthday cake, um, I took some of it, some of it, to the club where my friends and I were. And we all had drinks and we had the cake. And, you know, my friends had quite high tolerance. They were all quite unaffected. I thought, maybe I just got the heat wrong, the measurements wrong for once. But still, I've got some at home in my parents' house. (laughs) And maybe that's going to be a bit stronger. What I didn't know was that my parents had found it and had eaten some. So um, what happened, basically, after this was... My mother was driving. In fact, they were both driving. They're both in their respective cars. I know, shit. <laughs> Such a good girl up to this point. They were both driving. And, you know, they, they, my, my mother was a doctor. Like, they, they literally could have been struck off from their respective jobs by being in their cars and completely tripping balls. My mother has always been the more pragmatic of my parents, so she realised what was going on fairly swiftly and just thanked God that she had not packaged up any of the cake to share with her best friend or my grandmother, which she had considered doing that day. (laughs) Uh, My dad has always been a little bit slower on the uptake, so he didn't actually realise, even when he held up traffic on the Tyne Bridge for 10 minutes because he was driving at 10 miles an hour. He told me afterwards that he was transfixed by the light on a woman's hair, and apparently this went on for quite a while. (laughs) He then went home and had some more cake. (laughs) And they don't remember anything that happened after that, but when we all woke up the following day, all of the crisps had gone. The thing is, like, because my parents have so few stories about the times that I was bad, they actually love telling that story. Like, whenever we're at a wedding and a few drinks have been had, I always walk past them and I just hear the words weed, cake, high as a kite, and I stared at a woman's hair for ten minutes and missed the traffic lights. The thing is, like, everybody does something a bit bad every now and then, you know, even when they're largely a good girl, a good person. And, you know, I think I've still got my skills, so if you've got a decent supplier, I can make you a cake that you will never forget. Thank you. Sophia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Lovely to be here. It's so nice to see you again. And I wonder, how does that sound hearing that story back after so many months? It's really interesting hearing it back after so many months. It was a wonderful experience telling the story. One of my highlights of the last year and uh, Vic Dry was so good at helping me work on it and bring out the little details of it and some of the things that, you know, I hadn't maybe thought about because when you're writing the story, it's not always clear to you, you know, what the themes are. Just for our listeners' benefit, Vic Dry is our MC and also one of our coaches that works with lots of our storytellers before they share their stories on stage. Yeah, so listening to it again, um, you know, I, I, I like that there's, there's not a huge amount of excess information in it. It's all kind of geared towards telling what is this rather simple story. I know, but for you, what are, you, what are the most meaningful themes to you as you reflect on it? I'd say one of the most obvious themes in it is the idea of being a good girl and being a people pleaser. 
And for me, that's bound up with a couple of things. So being raised Catholic, for example. Um, we have so much in common. <laughs> I know we really do. It's one of the reasons why we hit it off immediately, I'm sure. And I also knew that I fancied girls from quite an early age. And But I think one of the things that was odd about this time in my life was that when I moved schools, these sort of vistas opened up for me. And I did have a bit of a double life. So whether that was sort of literally having my cake and eating it while having the boyfriend and knowing like what I was really into or later on when I was about 17 when I'd started clubbing and you know my weekends would be spent having a very different life and at the time the UK version of Queer as Folk which predated the US version was on TV and they had the character Nathan and I very much identified with him because you know you'd come in you'd put on your school uniform and you'd go on with your day but nobody knew where you'd been the night before and I massively got off on that like I did actually quite like having a double life so you really did have did, a double life because your definition of good girl <laughs> is really interesting to me involving drinking and smoking and stealing your parents booze mm-hmm. and getting high I mean it's pretty dimensional let's say it is I mean these things I, I did quite moderately I guess that's the thing I'm so rarely that I pretty much remember them all as discrete incidents but yeah. I think there was this thing about you know I talk about feeling like my parents were my weird old flatmates or feeling as though they were on each other's side and I was not. Um, I was, you know, the the person they were ganging up against. And that's understandable because I was a nightmare (laughs) and uh, most teenagers are. Um, So I can see why they did that. But it was as if this connection that we'd had that had been very strong had sort of started to waver a bit and needed to be reformed especially when it came to me and my mother and figuring out what our relationship would be like as two adult women well because I have the impression I I met your parents at your book launch and they seem pretty cool they are yeah. Everybody says so. I, can you take us back to this time before the events of this story? Because it sounded like you had a really close relationship and that you were that Rachel Berry character. Was this like an outlet, a release? And how did your parents play into that when you were little? It's a really good question because you've reminded me of something that Victor I and I actually took out of the story. And it was one of the last things to go just because it wasn't 100% germane to the story. But now you mention it, it is actually relevant. The thing is that my parents had double lives as well. My mother was far more of a rebel as a teenager than I ever was. Um, She had the additionally strange thing of growing up in Zimbabwe. Uh, Her family were strict Catholics. And while she had a great relationship with her father, there were certain things that, you know, he was a man of a certain generation. He fought in World War II. There were things that he would never have understood. Although actually both of them were quite understanding about my sexuality in later life. But, you know, in the 50s. Both your grandfather and your mother. Yeah, both my grandfather and my mother were were both quite understanding about it. My grandmother never entirely lost hope that the next one would be a guy. Um, (laughs) And I did rather confuse that in my life. 20s when sometimes they were but yeah so in fact my parents had double lives they had successful careers and they also had wild sides you know you would hardly ever get them off the dance floor they occasionally they, they like to drink my cousin still talks about the time when you know sometimes they would party at family gatherings and oh your parents are so cool and so my, my mother was far more of a tearaway than I was and my dad was in bands and both of them left school quite young so they weren't really feeling academia at all and then they went back and got like mature student qualifications. So both my parents went to uni, but not in the the same kind of way as as, as I did or at the same time in my life. So Oh, that's um, really interesting yeah. context. Yeah. So they were also quite mixed. And one of the things that I think we'll potentially get onto is sort of the idea of like moving between worlds. So moving between, you know, working class and middle class life, which is another theme in the story, moving from, you know, state to private school and the what emotions that, like? that went with that. Yeah, what was that like for you? 
It felt good. I mean, mainly I was glad that in the private school that I went to for sixth form and the year or so before that, that it felt safe. Mm. And I think that's really important because my previous school was going through quite a rough patch. It was not good um, when I was there and um, I was relieved to be out of that. But it did mean that, you know, eventually I lost some friendships or some people thought I was getting above myself. The ones throwing the snowballs. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) The ones throwing the snowballs at me. And my dad almost went down to sort them out, but I managed to talk him out of it, which gives you an idea of what he was like. Um, uh, But I did did really manage to take advantage of the things that were good about my personality private school but at first I was a bit freaked out by it I have to say. Sure but I must hear about the posh Geordie accent. Yes. As someone who also changed her accent from when I was little I find this fascinating like when we evolve the way we present ourselves. What was your story? I think my story was that uh, neither of my parents actually grew up in the northeast. You know, my mum was born in the northeast, but mm-hmm. she grew up in Zimbabwe from being yeah. five years old. And so when she came back, she had that more South African sounding accent. She doesn't now. She speaks more like me. My dad's more of a country boy and was raised just outside of Oldham, uh, which is near Manchester. And my dad was very much for me. His father was also very, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of type. So they weren't for having much of a regional accent and whenever I would say a certain word in the style of my you know school friends um, as a little girl my dad would often kind of pull me up on it and go like don't say it like that but yeah it's funny my cousins have Geordie accents and I love them but I don't and that's one of those weird things and about being brought up in in the 90s and during a period of like optimism and people being very into the future and Europe and things can only get better and that kind of thing people thought things would continue to get better and so so, you know, we wouldn't have to worry so much about class anymore. What it kind of means is that you've sort of been raised for a future that doesn't quite exist. And oh, yeah. I am not working class. My dad once asked me, like, out of the blue, sort of, what do you identify as? I was like, well, I, I couldn't say I'm working class. That's like me doing cosplay or something. Or be, <laughs> you'd be like one of those people at uni talking about how they had an outside loo and just, you know, my, my parents are poorer than your parents. Couldn't possibly do that. Ridiculous. But my parents were born working class. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened to a lot of 80s and 90s kids. There was yeah. this huge kind of advance and it ends up with us being sort of removed from our from our roots and you know I'm not ashamed of the progress and it's a big part of you know why my parents you know are proud of me thankfully. I was just going to ask you about the I think sometimes my parents are simultaneously proud of me and a little bit of who do I think I am Mm. Um, do you ever get that? I don't get that from them I do have some older cousins who is a bit you know for example when I do anything that might be deemed as an Irish person would say notiony or having notions you know (laughs) they they don't they don't like not, not that I am anymore but whenever I you know post a picture of some aspirational brunch food that looks slightly vegan they don't like that <laughs> they don't like that I don't call my mother ma'am even though I've never called her ma'am you know just like, I'm not going to start at this this great age this is a very fun party game I have to say <laughs> when you do your old accent like especially over drinks oh, I'm not sure I even could I tried a couple of times at college and just came out sounding a bit Welsh I don't think I'd really <laughs> subject my cousins to that kind of level of humiliation but one of the things we've spoken about and one of the things that I hear when I hear myself talk is the sort of, you know, the flat A's, as some of my old bosses have pointed out, um, often to belittle me, but just to kind of use that sense of when you say bath, laugh, grass, that kind of thing, instead of having the, the longer A on it, that's something that I still do. And I didn't realise that I did it at all until I was in my early 20s and I was in a production of the Vagina Monologues and the director pointed it out. So I didn't realise that I still do that. Well, I love your accent, <laughs> whatever it is. Thank you. <laughs> it's beautiful. So you were mentioning that when you were 
in school that you were fudging your pronouns. Mm. And I was curious what that experience was in the 90s for you. It's very different to kind of what I'd think of as the, what we see on TV now as the sort of heart stopper or sex education experience. And, you know, real schools aren't necessarily like that either. I mean, when I've been into schools to, you know, help with their PSHE is, you know, look, here's a queer person, very exciting kind of things that I used to do sort of pre-lockdown. Um, you know, schools are different. And I've been to some quite religious parts of London where they're just going to be not entirely au fait with, with this and not on board with it because it's against their religion. And uh, so I know that not all high schools are like this sex education style, like US utopia looking thing where everybody's non-binary and it's all great. But it was it was different and especially an all girls school because, sure. you know, I, like I said, I didn't miss the attentions that I got from the boys in the mixed school, but I had never particularly wanted to attend an all girls school either. My mother had always thought it was quite a dodgy idea because she hadn't enjoyed it herself. So she kind of left it off for as long as possible until it was really clear that my previous school wasn't working out. And especially among, you know, in all girls schools, there was this sort of horror that people would think you were queer. So it it really was kind of the worst thing. Wow. And then you mentioned that your mother and your grandfather were accepting of your sexuality. Was this just a natural part of your upbringing with your parents? Like, was it easy to come out to your parents? Yeah, thankfully, with their more hippie-ish sides, you know, they had the mix of establishment and hippie, like, you know, my dad being in bands, but he would also wear a three-piece suit to work and occasionally run into his old musician mates of like looking a bit disheveled on the streets. And they go, God, Dave, you look so establishment. Um, But we were quite lucky in that we had a couple of people in the family or my mother's best friend was gay, for example, so that that made things easier easier. Whereas quite a lot of the people who I met in college who were just coming out then, they obviously hadn't had a similar experience and they didn't have sort of queer relatives or their parents' friends were, you know, that they wouldn't have been queer. So I was quite lucky to have on both my mother's and father's sides people who'd kind of gone there before me. So I never took that for granted. Right. And as we were both raised Catholic, that can sometimes Mm. be a complicating factor. Absolutely. And it was also difficult for my mother to reconcile her feminism with that as well. So you know, before I was actually confirmed, we decided to leave the church and we, we tried a couple of other religions. But, you know, once once, you, once you've had the, uh, the <laughs> fire and brimstone, there's no going back, really. So we eventually just kind of stuck to, you know, deciding what our own beliefs would be. But, you know, these things do leave a mark. And it was hugely important to my grandparents, for example, particularly my grandmother. Uh, so it was still important. So it really sounds like you and your parents are something of a trio, something of a, of a team. Is that been true as you've become an adult? Well, this is a slightly messed up coming of age story. And I'm still sort of slightly on the fence about, you know, what does an adult child do when you don't live near enough to your parents to go home for Friday night dinner or whatever the, you know, Catholic equivalent of that is. Uh, so I do kind of struggle with wondering whether I'm useful enough to them. I think we have good relationships now. I think when I first left for college, it was very intense because you know I would just be off partying and then we'd have these like emotional reunions and then we'd end up fighting with each other at the end of the vacations and I'd go back and, oh it's so great to be free from my parents again and go, oh I miss my parents oh it's really bad um <laughs> so it took a while for that to settle down both the extreme pain of not being with each other and the arguments and the reunions it was all very kind of you know operatic basically especially with me and my mother 
But that eventually calmed down over time and we started forging sort of different relationships, particularly when I started working. But, you know, generally the important work is done when you're much younger and you can probably tell from the story that that sort of trust and that bedrock was always there. So really that's kind of what we were building on. So as we're talking about the story and the way that it ends and your parents being proud of (laughs) the story in a sense, you mentioned in the story that it's partly because there were so few instances of you being bad. But now that you're explaining more of their background, I wonder if there isn't some pride of seeing some of themselves in you in this story. I think so. I think, you know, that they like their sort of wild streaks to be recognised, which is one of the reasons why, you know, that they're quite good at hanging onto their old friends and and they like reliving those memories and talking to me about them. Uh, So yeah, I think there is definitely a bit of chip off the old block there. I mean, if their lives hadn't been like that, then why would they have been proud of this experience? It's just like us, really. I know, but I love that part of it. And I do feel as you're telling more of their story that it shows up in you pretty beautifully. You're a woman of many dimensions, I think. (laughs) And there's so many things that you're doing creatively that is so exciting. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about the craft and the process you have of putting a story like this together. So just like on the story, you made a big creative decision to tell us upfront what the story was about. How conscious of a decision? I know you. It was probably a very conscious decision. Can you explain that? I think I just, I wanted to do something that wasn't necessarily a stand-up routine, but I wanted it to be funny. Uh, I didn't really have a sort of secondary contender for what I wanted the story to be about. And the first one that I had told at a different event, your first one in the UK, at Two North Down, had been very... It was still obviously they're they're autobiographical because that's what they are, but that also had its roots in something I turned into a work of fiction. And this one was just basically, you know, can I find the funny in this story? And I really love your turn of phrase and your poetry skills are so evident in the way that you put us in these scenes. And I'd love to just hear a little bit more about what's happening with your poetry of this incredible book out, the Poetry Writer's Handbook. And it sort of touches on all the aspects of that part of your writing life, getting your work discovered, having it published, performing it. I think you as a performance poet really is a distinguishing feature. And it really, I think, showed up in the story. I think definitely in terms of the rhythms and how you sort of weight a line, like it's not quite second nature because obviously your first draft is always going to be messier or you're going to have bits where people ask, you know, why were you talking about that? That's not relevant. But for me, I think you're absolutely right in that performance poetry is the key that got me into everything else uh even publishing to some extent but it is the thing that started me working on fiction and working on I guess what you call page poetry as well it was just sort of this sense of I like the the discipline of a performance poem and the idea that you're creating something that's meant to be entertaining uh, from, you know, what's not always the world's most popular or lucrative art form. But it's still, when you're doing a performance poem, it has to be entertaining. Performance poetry can get quite a bad rap. And one of the reasons why I really enjoyed um, dwelling on it for two chapters in the Poetry Writer's Handbook was because, for me, it is the cornerstone on which everything else is based. And I'm fascinated by its history. I say my parents and, you know, Newcastle actually been quite a great cultural hub, which is one of the things I always tell people when they assume it's just Geordie Shaw and the Tuxedo Princess boat and all of that kind of thing. Um, obviously, we all went on it. Um, but, you know, we have fond memories of that. But it also is the home to the Theatre Royal, the RSC come a couple of times a year, the Ballet Rambo would come. And so I also got to see performance poets such as John Hegley and Benjamin Zephaniah when I was quite a small girl. And they took me to see stand up and that kind of thing. So, you know, in the Northeast, like if, if you're not 
not entertaining, you might as well go home. You know, they'll tolerate they'll tolerate you for a bit, but you know, you won't be asked back. So I think that is part of the joy of performance poetry for me. And people, you know, until they see it, they don't really know or see it done well. In particular, they don't really get why it matters or why it's different. But it's self evident, which is one of the things I like about it when executed correctly. It employs so many different skill sets at once, and so among the many things that you are uniquely gifted at, it's speaking eloquently quickly. So where did that, how did that develop in your life? Oh, I think that weirdly, the sort of being a theatre kid probably did help with that. And one of the reasons why being a performance poet kind of led to me giving the fullest sort of expression of myself was that as a theatre kid and as an actor, I have limitations. I can do something entertaining, but people are never going to believe that I'm anybody other than I am. Whereas when I, and, you know, also parts for women are pretty much historically dreadful. I mean, they're better now, but, you know, who wants to be the matron in 40 years on or who wants to be the wife that the more interesting characters are cheating on? Why don't we get to go on interesting journeys? You've got an entire school full of women here. Admittedly, some of them are dressed as guys for the school <laughs> school play. Um, so I did feel the limitations, both of the plays that were being written and my own limitations. I was good, but up to a point, like a point far, far below where I would have needed to be for drama school. So I did didn't manage to kind of express that until I discovered spoken word. And Mm. if it's my words, then I can get it across and I can perform up to a certain extent. I think in the handbook, I talk about it as being kind of like a loop where it takes you back to the moment of composition and it's almost trance-like. And, you know, you know, as a a writer yourself, that sometimes it feels as though the words or whatever are flowing through you. Mm -hmm. And there's an element of artifice when you're performing that on stage, because sometimes you are literally possessed and and the place could be burning down and you don't notice. But sometimes you are thinking like, I wonder what I'll have to drink after this. Or I wonder if they'll notice that I fudged that word or (laughs) shall I do this one next? Because it seems like that guy's not laughing or whatever. And, you know, you're kind of, your mind's running on two tracks. Yeah, theatre and learning to sing at a young age did actually help with my ability to speak quite quickly. But it's also, you know, just kind of the speed that I naturally run at and I want to be able to express that. Yeah, authentically. (laughs) Exactly. Well, your performance poetry I think is mind-blowingly good and I know that you're doing some new interesting projects that incorporate it. Do you want to tell us about some of them? Yeah, so my wife Helena and I started work on a show called Wife Material about this time last year and it's evolved from just kind of us doing bits like Helena does some comedy, Sophia does some poetry and it goes around like that too. It's actually more like a play now and we're taking more inspiration from the theatre um, and we have a director and dramaturge Maria Shahata, who's also an alum of True Story. Yes. Um, and we've been working with her for a couple of years now on it. And uh, yeah, really happy with how it's progressing. Well, the version I saw was absolutely fantastic and I can't wait to see the latest. So that'll be coming up soon. Where online can people find out where it's showing at the time? Oh, we actually have a dedicated website for it, which I think is wifematerial.co.uk. Oh, so you can find it there. Um, you can find Helena Blackwell and Sophia Blackwell on our various channels. So still on Twitter for however, however long that lasts. So <laughs> Sophia Blackwell, you can find me there. Or Sophia Poet on Instagram. Helena's more into Instagram than I am. But, you know, it's fairly easy to find us online. And I have my own website, sophiablackwell.co.uk. We actually have sort of, at the time of speaking, about 10 or 15 theatre shows lined up for this year. And I think one of the reasons why um, people are responding to it and booking it is because it is about joy. Um, 
Um, it is about queer joy. And it is also, I have the 20 years experience of live work. So I'm quite able to, you know, hold a space where people can feel, you know, it's not unchallenging. There's two bits of quite dark material in it, but largely I can hold a space for people to feel safe and Helena can hold a space for people to feel safe and to go okay we're going to go to some difficult places here but it's all right genuinely this is a massively optimistic show and it's about love and what happens after love as well who can't relate to that to some extent absolutely and I love like just for our connection that the very first time we had a true story show you and Helena were both on that stage and you both talked about different elements of love. And now to see you on stage together at the same time is pretty exciting. You hold the space beautifully and it is joyful, but it goes interesting places and difficult places, but in a way that you are making it possible for people to go with you and then come out of it with Mm. you. And so it feels very whole. To be honest, actually being able to do something meaningful with the live experience that I have has led me to this. Mm. And yes, Helena chose to independently explore stand-up and wouldn't actually let me see her perform for the first first couple of times she did it um, until she became addicted to it, which happened quite quickly. But she was very nervous and she wouldn't let me see it. Uh, And just going back to the true story show that we first did, Helena was your first storyteller. Maria was the last, um, understandably, get her to close the show. I was the one on before Maria. And really what happened was Helena's and my stories ended up bookending each other. And I didn't intend to end on the line that I did. Um, So I had this whole other paragraph written that followed what I said. But weirdly, I just ended up referencing Helena's first story. And then you could just see the audience going... Oh, she's married to her. She's yeah. married to the first one. He was talking about how she, you know, how she found love and it's her. Oh, this is so exciting. And I just threw in a line and said, reader, I married her. And the whole place went up. And I was like, okay, I'm getting off the stage now because this is clearly the end. Yes, yes, yes. And I, that was a really special moment. And it was such early days of True Story that we didn't even record it. So some other time we'll have to get you and Elena back bookending another show and retelling some of those elements of that story because that would be really special. But in the meantime, it's going to be great to see you again in Wife Material. Yeah. Thanks, Sophia. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about today's story and conversation, see the show notes at truestorylondon.com. And if you like what we're doing and want to sponsor us, you can do that on our website too. The True Story London podcast is hosted by me, Michelle Toth. Our producer is Ellis Ballard. Our theme music is by C-Noise. Live recordings were provided by Laughing Around and recorded at 21 Soho. And just one more thing. Please subscribe and rate us at your favorite podcast platform. It really does help, especially since we're a new podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you for another episode soon. <laughs>